Matthew 28, picking up right after when the, the women go to kind of spruce up the tomb because it smelled bad because Jesus' rotting body was in there. And they wanted him to have some dignity in death. And they actually encounter an empty tomb and a resurrected Savior. This is what happens next. While the women were going to tell the disciples what had happened, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they, being the chief priests, the religious authorities, gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, this is the story. Get it straight. Tell the people, his disciples came at night and they stole his body while we were all sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. We'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day, Matthew says. Years and years and years after this happening. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you until the end of the ages. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, help us tonight. Uh, Actually, through your Spirit, let the ripples of resurrection hit us tonight. That raw power, that transforming power that changes whatever it touches. Jesus, I pray that that power would come in this room tonight. My words are weak. Our brains are weak, our bodies are tired, our hearts are hard. But you are good and you are clear and you are powerful. And so would tonight be a little moment where we remember, we walk out and we say, Tonight, I felt the Lord in his power and he changed me. Do that for your sake, we pray and for ours. Amen. Have you ever heard of the term uh, disruptive innovation? If you're a Terry grad, uh, Terry... uh, Terry student right now, it's probably a term you've heard because it's a business term. But even if you're not familiar with the term disruptive innovation, you know what it is because we're living in a, in a generation where disruptive innovations have been happening about every six months for the past 20 years. So a disruptive innovation is, is an invention or a new way of doing things that is so radically different, so new, so outside of the box... Um, so innovative, that it completely disrupts the status quo. And because it disrupts the status quo, uh, disruptive innovations, uh, they create a whole new set of winners and losers. It basically rewrites the playbook. Everybody, everybody has to go back to square one and reimagine everything from that point forward. And it makes an entire, like it makes industries or people or philosophies or whatever obsolete overnight. That's why disruptive innovations create tremendous resistance and pushback. Because it creates a whole different set of winners and losers, it shifts the power dynamics. People who were powerful and had influence on Monday, after this disruptive innovation lands on a Tuesday, don't have any power in your influence anymore. 
So Netflix is a disruptive innovation. Most of you are too young to know this experience. There's a couple of us in the room uh, who remember what it was like on Friday nights to go with our family to Blockbuster or Vision Video to walk the rows to pick out a movie. And you better hope that nobody else wanted the movie you wanted or if it was like a big Blockbuster or something because it was gone. They only had like 20 cassettes of it or 20 DVDs. You were out of luck. You had to go like walk some other aisle and find some other video. And then there was like the red box phenomenon, which is kind of still hanging on a little bit. Netflix disrupted that entire industry. It disrupted the entire entertainment industry. It created a whole new set of winners and losers. I just uh, came across a headline the other day. The, I don't know if he's the content creator or the, or the CEO of Netflix. He's one of the richest men in America now. Hundreds of millions of dollars. Netflix is a disruptive innovation. It created a whole new set of winners and losers. I don't know if you knew this. Do you know how many times Netflix has been sued by the big Hollywood studios? The content creators? Do you know how resisted they were by ESPN, ABC, NBC, CNN, everybody pushed back against Netflix being able to do what it's doing because they knew if this catches on, we're toast. Cable companies are going through the floor right now because everyone's cutting their cord. Why do I need cable? I got Netflix. Which means disruptive innovations like Netflix create tremendous pushback and resistance. Same with Amazon. I was driving up Baxter a couple weeks ago, and it didn't click. I'm like, Joel, where's all the bookstores? Why are they all closed down? And he's like, Amazon, dude. I was like, oh, yes, I promise I'm a little bit relevant here. Amazon. When you get your syllabus in in January and in August, everybody flocked to Baxter. There was like eight bookstores. And you take your syllabi around and you find out which store had your book, and that's how you did it. They're all out of business now. They're shuttered. Or they're closing down this month. Amazon disrupted all of commerce, brick and mortar. A whole new set of winners and losers created tremendous pushback. Part of the, is a big factor in the last election, right? All of these shops uh, shutting down. Smartphones, internet, all of it. It changed the way we do relationships, the way we transact money, the way we entertain ourselves, the way we do productivity. Changed it all overnight. You have two options when you're confronted with a disruptive innovation. You know what they are? You can yield to it, get on board, and be a part of the revolution. Or you can resist it and get steamrolled and left behind. Some of you in the room have dumb phones tonight, and you know what I mean. And you might have great reasons for having them, but you know what it's like to get left behind if you don't get on board with these disruptions. You should think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as history's unmatched, unprecedented, Disruptive innovation. There is never going to be, there never has been a disruption historically that pales in comparison to the death and resurrection of the Jesus described in the scriptures. And I say that, let me step out from behind here. I'll say that as, uh, as a regular person. I'll say it as someone who's been a product of academia here. You can say it as a historian. You can say it however you want. No serious historian would doubt what I just said, Christian or not, secular or not, whatever. No serious historian will doubt what I just said. Don't believe me? Go read it from their mouths. 
Historians across the board see this unbelievable blip on the radar. You know, you can track on Google, you can go and see when terms kind of were in there, like a certain word. It'll show you like a line graph of when it was in vogue. You can literally go back through ancient manuscripts and track to the, de- to the month the chatter of the government officials, the chatter of the journalists and the historians of the ancient world when the disciples of Jesus claimed he was raised up. And they had an empty tomb as evidence that anybody who wanted to check their facts could go and look with their own two feet. History's greatest disruption and just like everything I said about Amazon and Netflix and the Internet and smartphones, it, his resurrection created a whole new cast of winners and losers. Overnight, the power brokers changed. On a Friday, the strong, the influential, the rich, the educated, the privileged had the power. On Sunday morning, the weak, the poor, the foolish had the power. The ostracized, the left behind, the forgotten. It created a whole new set of winners and losers. It made entire philosophies, belief systems, hedonism, you only live once, stoicism, obsolete and silly. And you can imagine, if it is history's greatest disruption, it's also produced history's greatest resistance. Why? Because we love our status quo just like the Hollywood studios did, just like the music studios in Nashville did and didn't want iTunes, just like the old Bell companies didn't want cell phones and sued the new cell phone makers. We love our status quo. That's what it means that the resurrection is history's greatest disruption. Now, let me dig into that comment a little bit deeper. What do I mean that it is disruptive? That the resurrection of Jesus is disruptive and... and When I say that, I don't mean the resurrection of Jesus as some magic trick. Because the Bible never talks about the resurrection as a, you know, like um, Gob Bluth or Joe Bluth. It's like, da-da-dun, dun, dun, da-da-dun, dun-dun. And it's this magic trick where God's like got this hat and he's like, hey, watch this. You didn't think I was real? Boom, abracadabra, he's alive. Here he is. Greetings. That's never how the Bible describes the resurrection. Never in a magic trick, let's prove this to you, let's do a cool thing so you'll believe me kind of a way. Resurrection was this ancient theme that every Jewish person knew. It was baked into their DNA. Everybody knew that the Messiah, the rescuer that had been promised from thousands of years before, would bring new life, resurrection life. They just didn't know how. They didn't know the circumstances of it. When the Bible talks about resurrection, it is pivotal. It's personal. It's always historically rooted, not inspirational, and it's transformational. It disrupts resurrection, the way the Bible talks about it, disrupts a me-centered life. Paul says that, 1 Corinthians, that we, he died that we would no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who gave himself up for us. It disrupts the narrative of shame that is the hamster wheel many of us are on. The resurrection offers a hand, an outstretched hand, and says, don't you want to get off of that? Don't you want to see God naked on a cross, struggling for breath, bearing the curse of your shame, that you might walk away from it like a pile of clothes on the ground? 
It disrupts your guilt. It disrupts alienation from God. It disrupts your yesterdays. And it says tomorrow can be different for you because of what Jesus has accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. It disrupts our hopelessness, our helplessness. And you better believe it disrupts the power structures of the world. Right? Just like it did back then. Let's dig even a little bit more deep before we push on. What is this about death and resurrection in the Bible? Here's a, here, there's two conundrums in the Easter story. Number one, why did Jesus die? And number two, why did he raise up to new life? Both are problems for the Bible. Both produce more questions maybe than they answer. First, why did Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God, die? Because the Bible's very clear, only guilty people die. Death, in in the Bible's eyes, is not a natural occurrence. It is an invader, an intruder. It is foreign. It is bad. You're supposed to be sad at funerals. You're supposed to be angry at funerals because it's not normal. And you weren't given the equipment to deal with it because you weren't supposed to deal with it. Death is an intruder, and only guilty people die. Deuteronomy says it. Follow, obey the the law, and you will live. Break the law, disobey the law, and you will die. The wages of sin is death. You've heard that, right? Well, the Bible's serious. That's what sin produces. It's its end result. It's terminus. So why did Jesus Christ, the innocent Son of God who became man, how did he end up dead, if all of what I just said is true? How did he end up cursed? How did he end up guilty? How did he end up condemned? How did he end up rejected? How did he end up a lawbreaker suffering the consequences of being a lawbreaker? Isaiah 53, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 4, anywhere you want to turn in the Bible, Old or New Testament, will point a finger and say something bigger was going on in his death on that cross and his resurrection. He was trading with you. He was trading with me. He ended up dead because in a very real way, the proof of it is he actually died. He took your sin on him. How do you know? How do you know this isn't just a mind game? Oh, believe, believe, believe. I'm not ashamed anymore. Jesus really took my sin. I really am forgiven. Oh, try to believe. That's not not what the Bible leaves us with. The Bible leaves you with your own set of eyes looking at a cross with a dead Jesus on it saying, that's the proof that I've been set free. And if you had been alive, then you could touch the proof. You could smell the proof. How did the innocent one become guilty? And it sets up this other conundrum that's on the flip side of the coin. How did a guilty dead guy all of a sudden come back to life? Because only innocent people live. Only obedient people live in the Bible's economy. So how does Jesus, who's literally like his body is decomposing the way everybody put in a grave decomposes, and all of a sudden, for the first time, that heart starts to flutter? Blood starts to fill up veins that had collapsed. A blood pressure returns. Electrical impulses in the muscles start to fire. Neurons start to fire. Can you imagine that first gasp of air? Was it strained? Was it deep? Was it shallow? I don't know. But for the first time ever, a human being who'd been rotting comes back to life. And the question that's bigger than how did that happen physiologically, that's just, that's a distant concern for the Bible. How did it happen spiritually is what the Bible leaves us with. How? Because he was guilty. 
Paul answers the questions in Romans 4. He says, in Christ's resurrection, he was vindicated. And everyone that is attached to him, if you're a Christian or if you want to be a Christian, you look to Jesus by faith, you're immediately united to him, you're grafted into him, you are vindicated in his resurrection too. Which means, what does vindication mean? It means you are proved righteous. When Jesus rose up from the dead, it was proof positive, just like his body was proof that he was cursed for you. His resurrection is tangible, touchable proof that God is satisfied with his payment. The law examines him and it says, you have paid in full. There is nothing left to be punished. There's nothing left worthy of condemnation. It's been dealt with already. Why are you bringing up the past? It's over. His resurrection is God's way of saying to his people, let's move on. Let's move on. That's what death and resurrection in the Bible meant. That's what the significance is of the innocent second person of the Trinity dying and the significance of that guilty and dead Jesus raising up again. That's what it means. And it gets better because Paul, all through Scripture, says you're united to Jesus both in his death and his resurrection. How do you know that your sin is truly paid for once and for all, will never come back? To wave a pink slip and say, hey, whoa, 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 this guy just did this. This girl just did this. Come on. Hello, referee, did you see this? How do you know? Because in Jesus' death, you were with him. You were in him. And so you were condemned. You were punished. You have been, you have received the desert of your sin. And you have come out alive on the other side in Jesus, vindicated. God looks at you and he says, innocent. The law looks at you and says, nothing to see here. All checks out. That's the significance of the resurrection. And so, not a magic trick. When people mess with whether or not it happened, they're messing with some big stuff, right? This isn't a, did Jesus walk in water or not? Not as much on the line there. Was Jesus raised from the dead? Or did his disciples hide his body? Everything Becca read from 1 Corinthians 15 is on the line. Your life is futile if he didn't. You are hopeless if he didn't. You are dead in your sins and your best days are all behind you if he didn't. You have no hope of being reconciled to a God who is very angry with sin. We are dead in our sins. Paul says we of all people must be the most to be pitied. If we only have hope in Jesus in this life, if Jesus is a little Buddha that you scratch his belly to get, kind of get a blessing, if he's an inspirational pick-me-up to get through the hard days of life, if that's all Jesus is to you, could I suggest to you that you don't know the Jesus as he's described in the Bible? He is not a talisman. He is the living king of the universe, and he is so big, and he demands to be dealt with. That's the death and the resurrection Not a magic trick, but God's megaphone to the world. Everything just changed. Buckle up. A whole new world just invaded this awful world. Your your little your bulletin thing. The the next point in there is that if if this was history's greatest disruption in all the ways I just described, you bet you bet your life it's produced the greatest pushback, unprecedented pushback. Right? If this is the greatest disruptor to the status quo, the greatest inconvenience. To the status quo, you'd better believe those who have a vested interest in the status quo are going to fight tooth and nail against it. And that's exactly uh, what we see uh, in this passage. All throughout this passage, 
uh, and leading into the end. Both an external resistance, which we see here, and an internal resistance. Let's take the external first. The external resistance. Here's what happens. The women are going to tell the disciples, um, we didn't think Jesus was going to raise up, but whoa, he just showed up. He's alive. They're on the way to tell him. The guards, these, these are like rent-a-cops. That have, that's why they're so scared. Like, usually what happens to Roman guards, if, if something goes down on your watch, you get executed. That's the way, that was kind of the fine print of the employment papers. They're going to tell them, um, let's be proactive about it and let them know so that maybe they'll have some mercy on us. So they go to tell the people who hired them, hey, um, you know, uh, the rock's gone and he's gone. What do we do? And uh, the chief priests, the elders, uh, they thought they were done getting these like midnight groups together. They'd done about two or three of them to get Jesus crucified. They thought they were done, right? What an inconvenience. Ugh. Hit the group me up. Tell everyone to meet back at the Sanhedrin. Get everyone in there. We got to talk about this. So they go back in there and they start talking about this. And here's what goes down. And when they, when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money. I don't, sufficient is as much as you wanted. So however much they wanted was sufficient. And they said, here's the story. Hey, when the camera crews come, when you do the press conference, get our story straight so that we're all saying the same thing. Okay, here's the deal. Tell them his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were all sleeping. And they're thinking like, well, what about our bosses? And he said, hey, if it comes to the governor's ears, we got your back. We'll take care of you. You just talk to the cameras. We'll take care of the back stuff. So that's what goes down in this externally resistant way. Now, I don't have to beat a dead horse. Why did the officials and the ruling class and the religious leaders want this disruption done away with? Because they, they could read the writing on the wall. They saw who Jesus' disciples were before he was crucified. They knew what would come of their tyranny over the people, their power. They'd lose it all. They knew they hated God in their hearts. And they knew this man is the son of God. He's alive. If he is, everything he said is true. And we'd rather continue living in the delusion because it's very convenient. They knew that all that would happen, and so they paid the soldiers off. And I think this is a very interesting point that I didn't realize until recently reading this passage. There's two great commissions at the end of Matthew, not one. We usually think about it as the Great Commission. There's two commissions. One is Jesus commissioning his disciples, and the other is the devil commissioning his disciples. Both sends out their disciples with a message to tell the world. Matthew says it's been spread amongst the Jews until the time of the writing of this gospel, and then Jesus says, go and spread this around the world. Two commissions. Only one of these narratives is rooted in historical, peer-reviewed, corroborated fact. Eyewitness attested fact. The other is based on bribery and fabrication. It's an important point. And if you're wondering, well, Ben, you're quoting the Bible for both of these sources, and I don't believe the Bible. How do you know this is true? Um, let's get lunch, because there's a thousand other ways to explain this. Historians don't know how to explain the explosive growth of the Christian church across the world, across tribes and ethnos or ethnicities from this moment in history. They have no explanation for how this happened. It's unmatched in history. They have no way to explain why are the Roman, th the chatter in all the historical documents, why are they all talking about the accounts of this resurrected Jesus at the same time? Why are secular historians and officials writing about this? They had no skin in the game. Why are women the first to encounter the resurrected Jesus? Who wrote this stuff? 
In that day, that would completely dismiss this account. No one believed the accounts of women in this day. Why would they name people? Joseph of Arimathea, Mary, mother of Jesus. All of these disciples' names are listed. Why would they say their names? Just let them be anonymous sources. That way no one can go and interview them or follow up. They name them all. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus in his resurrection appeared to 500 brothers, most of whom are still alive, he says, as if to say, don't believe us? Go three doors down and ask him. He touched them. John says in 1 John 1, the first three verses, this Jesus we proclaim we touched and we heard and we saw and he was made manifest to us. You've got a mountain of problems if you want to deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And they have not been solved 2,000 years of attempts. Only one of these accounts is based on eyewitness, peer-reviewed history. The other is based on fabrication. They were resistant to this happening. Now, here's the thing. Here's where this sits a little bit closer to home, and then we start to wrap up. Internally, we're resistant to the resurrection, too. I am and you are, right? I know I am. It's been three days since Easter. I've not thought about the resurrection of Jesus very much in the three days since. I know I'm resistant. And you are too. Why? Because we love the status quo. We love the way things are. We love to be able to... Whatever your life looks like right now, we love it. We've fallen in love with it. Anything that disrupts that or threatens that, we push back. So we love sexual immorality. It's in our interest to kind of tune this out and just plug our ears when people talk about the resurrection of Jesus frees you from slavery to sin. Can I hear that tomorrow? Because i got plans for tonight. It's like St. Augustine's uh, satirical prayer, Lord, give me uh, obedience or something like that, but, but not today. If we have a vested interest in the way things are now, if there's a, if there's a roommate or a person in the room that you don't want to reconcile with, you, don't, you just don't have much patience for all this stuff about the resurrection, uniting people back together and reconciling us. It disrupts your status quo. You resist it. I resist it. We push back. One of the reflection questions tonight is where is the Spirit, through this passage, poking his gracious little finger in your heart, saying, you are resisting me here. You are denying the power and the implications of my resurrection so that you can protect the status quo. Where do you need to yield? Where, in a sense, have you been left behind And you need to yield and say, Jesus, help me get on this train. This this resistance is in all of us. Have you ever noticed in the Great Commission, it says Jesus appears, the disciples get down on their knees and worship. Oh, and by the way, some doubted. And Matthew never explains it. He doesn't have like an excursus. And this is what we mean by the disciples doubted. It's not bad like you think it is. It's actually good like this. He just goes right past it, never mentions it. They worship the resurrected. This is kind of a climactic moment, right? It's this last paragraph, and there's this weird detail. And some doubted. This resistance to the resurrection of Jesus abides even in our hearts. It abided in the hearts of some of the people on that hilltop looking at the Messiah they'd spent three years with stand before them. And for the same reasons, 
in little ways and in big, we are vested in the way things are and we're inconvenienced by a resurrected Messiah. A dead Messiah is wonderful in a sense because we hold the cards, sorry, we hold the cards and he's over there. He's not alive. He's not getting in my business. He's not calling me to do things or pull me outside of my comfort zone. He's like elf on the shelf. He's just there. But a resurrected Messiah is inconvenient. And even the disciples saw that. Here's where we land this plane in the next few minutes. Um, the last two points are kind of pulled together. What's the, the mission of the church? I mentioned that there's these two kings. There's a pretender king, the devil, commissioning his forces. Go and tell the whole world this fabricated lie that is spread amongst the people, even today, even tonight, Athens, Georgia, in your classes, in your families, in your own heart. Totally spread today. Fancier language of why the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. Two kings, and Jesus commissions his church. And he's basically saying, conquer the resistance the way I've conquered the resistance. Through giving your life away for your enemies, through love, through a proclamation of the truth. That's how you conquer resistance. And that's the commission given to the church. Go into all the world and teach them all that I've commanded you. And baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, Jesus doesn't take issue with the fact that some of his disciples are doubting when he's giving them this commission. He still sends out these limping, broken guys who are trying to connect the dots. What does this even mean? My mind is blown. I don't know what to do with this. And Jesus still sends them out. That doesn't disqualify them from mission. It it, It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be ineffective. He sends them out. And that's the mission he gives to his church. We, we, you know, if you've ever heard a talk on evangelism, this is the passage everybody goes to. That's the word we associate with this, right? This gives us a new angle to think about evangelism. Evangelism is proclamation of the good news, but it's confrontational. Not in a jerky way, necessarily. You know what I mean, though, given what we've been talking about? Evangelism is necessarily confrontational. It is a new reality. It is a disruptive innovation as a big old freight train stuck here on the tracks with the existing status quo and worldviews and preferences and conveniences of another human being who's very vested in this set on a collision course. That's what it is. We are called to do it in love, to speak in love, not as clinging symbols, but as winsome people who call the world, who call out the lies of the devil who actually have enough confidence to start picking at other people's arguments and saying, dude, I read a Facebook post the other day. My buddy posted like he has risen and, you know, he's got that troll friend who says, really? Easter's a former pagan holiday celebrating breeding and agricultural success in the church co-opted. I'm like, and he says there's no historical evidence for it. And I was like, okay, like where do you start with that? Like none of what you just said is backed up anywhere in any literature, Christian or not. But there's resistance to it. What do we do with that? Well, we start gently, lovingly saying, dude, what's your source? That's silly. Who in 2,000 years has ever backed up what you just said? Like, we can disagree. Like the old senator said, you can have your own opinions. You can't have your own facts. So let's have a conversation about it. It's okay to disagree, but let's talk about it. We get to do that now. And the last thing I want to say is this. What's the motivation in that? Because I get it. There's a huge risk of being rejected or pushed away or seen as... Pushy, which is why we, most of us 
me tuck tail a lot of times and swallow this and just don't bring it up. I think our lack of motivation comes from not realizing all authority on heaven and on earth has already been given to the Lord Jesus who's alive. There's an American Express commercial that came out a year or two ago, and uh, I came across it on YouTube. And it was basically, uh, had me crying by the end of it. It was three minutes of, sh- of these little young CEOs. They're little entrepreneurs. They'd all started their own startups. Like one was like a dog food delivery service and other things. And they're these like mid-20s people. And they're in this like abandoned warehouse. And uh, they're doing this, you know, kind of artsy video shoot. And they're filming these guys talking, these ladies talking about their business, how, how passionate it is, how hard it's been or whatever. And then um, they say, hey, can you come with me? And they walk them to the back of the warehouse beside this other thing. And all there is is a screen with a projector, and they're asked to stand there. And they show on the projector the employees of these people saying things like, you know, Todd is the, he is the, the most visionary leader I have ever worked for. This is the first job in my entire life that every morning I look forward to getting into my car and going to work for him. And another person would say, like, of this CEO, Susan, or someone, like, I don't know how she's done it, but this workplace feels like family to me. And this has just been the biggest relief I've ever had in the workplace. And each of these CEOs, you see tears start coming down their face. And here's why they were crying. Because when you're a leader and you're taking risks, you never know if it's going to work or not. Right? Leadership is a very risky enterprise. You never know if it's going to work or not. And you rarely hear feedback. You don't know if it's going over well or going over poorly. And so this is the first time they hear their employees say, you've done so well, and we're the better for it. Thank you. And they're just reduced to a a flood of tears. Here's the question I have for you as we end tonight. What if you knew that you are guaranteed success? You are guaranteed fruitfulness in proclaiming this gospel this resurrection to your friends. What would that do to your motivation? If you got to walk to a screen and, and, and God, in a sense, was telling you on the screen, he was showing you the faces of your friends who in two years, five years, ten years, will be radically transformed, will no longer be dead in their sins, hopeless, the most to be pitied, but will be alive, and you saw their faces, what would that do to your motivation level? If you were guaranteed success before you went out. It'd be really different, wouldn't it? Jesus says to his people, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. And you are united to him, which means you bear his authority, which means you're on the winning team which means if this is a football game and there's two minutes left and it's tied and your coach says, I am guaranteeing you that we're going to win this game. You play very differently. You take risks. You push the envelope. You run the ball right through the guys because you know you're going to win. Christians, Jesus is gathering his church and he's using you to do it. Even with the doubt that remains in your heart, even with the resistance that he's still conquering, Take risks. Push the envelope. Go big. You will be successful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you.
that you were raised from the dead, teach us every day, little bit by little bit, just the earth-shattering significance of that. Teach us what it means in the mundane, ordinary little moments of the day. We don't wake up tomorrow to fireworks. We wake up to Thursday morning. And we need help believing. We need help proclaiming in a gentle, winsome, patient, gracious way to people who are deluded by the lies of the devil just like all of us have been. To show them the truth. To help them meet you. We ask this in your name. Amen.